Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the opening monologue. This is you trying to decide if you should press fast forward. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the uh, show. Welcome to this experience. My name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. My guest today is Mary Miller. Her debut novel, The Last Days of California, is due out from Live Right on uh, January 20th, 2014, which is to say the book's arrival is imminent. You can pre-order it right now, this instant. Go do that. Take a moment. Press pause. Uh, but then the book comes out on January 20th. It will be available uh, everywhere. You'll be able to find it wherever books are sold. I'm very pleased to get a chance to talk with Mary Miller at this particular juncture in her young career. I like talking with people who are just about to launch. I like that moment. Uh, it's as though they are in uh, the canon. The fuse has been lit. Tension is building. And then uh, here I come uh, badgering them with conversation. It's what I do. Uh, it's the service that I perform for you, the uh, listening public. Speaking of which, 
Uh, I asked you guys this past week uh, via Twitter to tweet me photos at other people pod. That's the show's handle on Twitter at other people pod, because as many of you are uh, well aware, I am curious and uh, perhaps strangely so about where you guys are when you listen to the program. So uh, if you're out there and you happen to be listening and you have a mobile device handy, perhaps if you're feeling generous, you could take a quick photo of your surroundings uh, or you could take a selfie and then tweet it to me at other people pod uh, with a message saying something to the effect of this is where I am when I'm listening. I will then retweet your photo and uh, make you micro famous in an extremely specific and totally inconsequential way. But I, I'm serious about this. Please do it. Just entertain me. That's what it's about. It's about my entertainment. <laughs> or else you can email me the photos if you're if you're not a Twitter person. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, please satisfy my curiosity and make my life uh, marginally more interesting. I think why I want this uh, most of all is because it helps the exchange feel more concrete to me, more communal and uh, human. So what else? Uh, I am now in a phase, writing-wise, where I am composing on note cards. Figured I would mention that. I'm just going to, uh, like, the plan right now is that I'm just going to amass a huge stack of note cards. This is my new methodology. Like, I have, you know, all these books that I've read over the years with a yellow highlighter in hand. And, uh, and then I have all this written material on my computer that I have amassed over the years. And uh, I don't quite know how it all fits together or if it all fits together for that matter. <laughs> but I do have this feeling that it might somehow. So I'm going to break things down into small individual pieces in an effort to make it seem more manageable. And I'm going to write each individual thing on an individual note card and then include at the bottom of each note card uh, subject matter, which is to say I'm going to index the cards, if that makes any sense, so that I can know, you know, broadly speaking, what each card is about at, at you know, at, at a glance. And then once I feel like I've amassed an adequate number of these note cards, I'm going to begin to organize them and sequence them and try to build some kind of book from the chaos. Like I'm expecting well over a thousand cards, maybe 2000. I have no idea. That's where I'm at right now. And you know, the books that I have stacked up uh, right here on my desk, they run the gamut. There's no consistency to it really. In the philosophy, spirituality, essay collections, biography, history. These are just books. I guess most of them are nonfiction. They're books that for whatever reason have stuck to me over the years and I think what I'm planning to do in response uh, to these books is to somehow write nonfiction from them or inspired by them. Though I could be wrong. What, what I can tell you with uh, virtual certainty, like 95% certainty, is that what I, am, what I write will be uh, a hybrid form. Why is this so hard for me? I mean, I know writing is hard for most of us, but why does it seem to be so hard for me to figure out what I want to say and how I want to say it?
it's just a huge, like evolving clusterfuck of a process for me that I am now explaining to you at length in an effort to ventilate my anguish. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Mary Miller. Her new novel, The Last Days of California, is due out on January 20th, 2014, from Live Right. I said that already. It's great to have her here. I really enjoyed uh, talking with her. I enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I think you're going to like it too. That's just my guess. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mary Miller, and her new novel, once again, is called The Last Days of California. So I am in my apartment in Austin, Texas, and I'm sitting on the couch, which is where I spend most of my days. You just sit on the couch? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I often, I mean, right now I'm just working from home, like writing and doing some publicity stuff for the book coming out. And I keep meaning to go out to the coffee shop, but yeah, mostly I I just end up in the house all day. Okay, so do you, is that how you work? Is that how you write? You write while sitting on the couch with like some sort of lap desk type situation? Yeah, I um, put a pillow on my lap and put the laptop on the pillow. Okay. And from there, yeah. That's good though, because I've heard that if you, I mean, especially for guys, if you have like a laptop on your uh, midsection, it can be unhealthy because of the heat. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm wary of that. I never said it directly on my lap. Okay, um, that's good. I don't want you to. Uh, I don't want your health to be in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth it. The writing is not worth. Uh, that's no, sort of, it's not. Uh, so okay, and you're uh, you're from Mississippi originally. I am. Yeah, I'm from Mississippi. I grew up in Jackson, and went that, to. Mm-hmm. What, that's like the Eudora Welty territory. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's where Eudora Welty's from. And sadly, I I haven't read very much Eudora Welty. I feel like for the longest time, just being um, in Mississippi and living there for so long, I had a tendency to reject, like, everything within the vicinity. Um, And so I've I've stopped doing that. But, yeah, there's still some holes. A couple of points I would like to make. First of all, I don't think it's possible to be named Eudora unless you're from Mississippi. I mean, that just seems like such such a regionally specific name. Uh, but then also, you know, Mississippi strikes me for all of its uh, problems. And, you know, I, th- I think those get talked about a fair bit. But Mississippi s- seems like a very rich place to be from culturally and maybe in ways that other 
other areas of the country um, don't don't quite match up to, or at least that's the way it strikes me from a distance. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up there, like I, we didn't travel much, or if we did, it was just within within the area. So I didn't really, I didn't really have a broader concept of like how other people might look at us, or or even just the specialness of the region and and what it did have to offer, and all of the like great things that came from there. And so I think it's just since I've been in Texas that I've really been able to like do it more objectively. And to like be like, oh, that really is cool. And like, I don't know, you know, like so many great people are from Mississippi. And right now, I'm using Elvis as like my Facebook and Twitter. Um, are you big into Elvis? You call it. You're- well, I have gotten, I've gotten to be like, yeah, right, recently. But yeah, before I was just like Elvis. Yeah, yeah, Elvis, whatever. Yeah. But you, you know, you, um, look at, you look at early pictures of Elvis, especially early when he was young. And uh, oh my God, he was so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, like there's just something like just perfect about him. And I think that, uh, well, I mean, he seems like kind of like the prototype for like what like hyperfame does to, or what hyperfame can do to a person. Uh, yeah, you know. So I think a lot of people have like the bloated, you know, like. Uh, Elvis with like a slip disc at like 275 pounds or whatever. But when Elvis, when Elvis was like 19 and, uh, you know, was just doing it for the love of the game, he was pretty special. He was amazing. Yeah. I actually, um, I ended up in Memphis at the Peabody on the 30th anniversary of Elvis's death. So I guess that was like 2007. And, um, every Elvis impersonator, it must've been from like, everywhere in the country. They had all descended on Memphis for Elvis's 30th anniversary of his death. And it was amazing. I was just like drinking with Elvis impersonators in the <laughs> lobby of the Peabody. And it was like, yeah, all shapes and sizes. And it was, it was the most wonderful thing. Well, you know, it's interesting that there are, there is this culture of Elvis impersonators because I can't think of too many other artists or pop stars that, you know, have engendered such a thing. Right. I mean, it's a specific, yeah. why why Elvis? Why do why impersonation of him? I mean, I know this happens with other celebrities, but it just seems like a kind of a, a culty thing. Yeah, super. I mean, it's still there's so many people who still like actually insist that Elvis is alive. <laughs> there's this um there's this man in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and he runs like this it's just this little house where he he's named his son Elvis. Everything in the house is Elvis. There's just like it's called Graceland Two, and it's open twenty four seven, three sixty five. Like you can go knock on his door at three a.m. and he'll give you this creepy tour of like his house where he lives with all this Elvis shit in there. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's something people like to do, like I- drunk. In the middle of the night, <laughs> and they can get the tour in the middle of the night. Yeah, no, he will, he will answer the door like whenever. It never closes. <laughs> um, so wait, have yeah. you have you been to Graceland? Have you been to the actual Graceland? I've heard it's kind of underwhelming, like it, just in the sense that like, I haven't been. Yeah, I've just heard at the level of scale, it like it, it's smaller than you would think, and you know, it, it's a different era. So it's like shag carpeting and you know the square footage yeah. isn't, isn't quite what people I think come into it expecting or something but it's fascinating i'm sure yeah i haven't been no i don't know that's i feel like that's another one of the things that because it's so close to your home it's like the tourist stuff you don't do right when you live in an area i mean like 
Yeah, I've never been to Eudora Welty's home. Um, you didn't. You didn't grow up seeing like Eudora Welty around town because she lived. Uh, you know, I want to say she lived almost to be a hundred years old. She died not not too. Yeah. Ago. You know, I'm not. I'm not sure when she died, but no, I never saw her around. Hang on, um, I'm going to Wikipedia it because this is going to. I know. I I feel like she's probably been been dead for longer than we think she has. Uh, two, yeah. 2001. So she lived from 1909, okay. 1909 to 2001. So she was like 90, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. maybe it's, I mean, it seems entirely possible. Uh, how old are you? If you don't mind me asking. I am 36. Okay. So you were alive when she was alive and living in Jackson. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's possible that like you and Eudora Welty could have crossed paths in town. Yeah. And my mom went to school with her niece. Like I've met her niece a few times and she now kind of, runs Eudora Welty House and, and yeah, does all of that now. Uh, and just to circle back, it just occurs to me too, that I almost named my first dog, uh, Elvis. And then he became, really? Yeah. It was, it was between, <laughs> listen to this, listen to this. It was between Elvis and Merlin. I don't know how Mer- Merlin emerged because oh, wow. Merlin emerged because, uh, I got him near the Colorado Utah border and was with a bunch of friends. Uh, and the night that I got him, uh, there were mushrooms in a tent in Moab <laughs> So I went and like, and everyone's, you know, he's a wizard. And it, I think I, I think I should have gone with Elvis in hindsight, but you know. Is, is Merlin still kicking? No, Merlin, uh, sadly, uh, passed away in, uh, 1990 or I'm sorry, 2006. I got him in 1996. Okay. So he was, he was a great okay. dog. He was like a border collie. He was like hyper, oh. hyper intelligent. Yeah. Uh, good friend, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So, uh, Mississippi, uh, religious? We, we, did you have a religious Southern upbringing in the, in the traditional sense? Yeah, I grew up Catholic, um, which in central Mississippi was not, most people were Protestant. So like there were very, 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 very few like Jewish people. I think I knew one Jewish girl. Her dad was a puppeteer and like for years I associated <laughs> Jews with puppeteering. Um, and then there were, there were a few Catholics, like there was there, but it was mostly Protestant. Um, yeah, but we were very religious and, and my parents were pretty strict back then. And did you take to it as a child? Were you devout? Well, you know, we didn't have a choice. Like we went to Catholic elementary school. Um, and, you know, we have to go to church every Friday. You just, and then my parents in seventh grade, you had to go to I church every Friday. We went once a week. I thought it was Sunday. Go- <laughs> I was raised. Yeah, Catholic. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we definitely went to church on Sundays. But oh. like, I think it was every week during the school week, we would, you know, have religion class and we'd have to go to church. And oh, yeah, right. of course, we went on the holy days of all obligation. And then in seventh grade, I was sent to like a prep school. Um And then I had to go to Sunday school and church. I mean, it wasn't optional. It wasn't. So I wasn't particularly devout, but at the same time, you know, so much of our life kind of revolved around religion, and it wasn't wasn't something you could be like, no, you know, I don't think I'll go to church today. <laughs> you know, that was just <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Okay, so what are your folks? Um, what are your folks like? What is your uh, what does your would your dad do? Is he a strict guy? Like, what, what's their what's their uh, their um, professionally? You know, let's see. They were they're both in sales. Um, my mom sold like radio and TV 
air time. I don't really understand that. It's like kind of selling something that so, doesn't really exist. Selling, selling, selling advertising. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad um, sells like life insurance and some financial stuff and health insurance. I don't really, I don't really know. We just know basically I have like three siblings and we all, all we ever wanted to know is that we never wanted to sell anything. Like we would rather starve to death than have to go into sales. Why is that? What did you um, have like a, did you have like a, was it hard to watch your parents like going out to sell air every day or did you just, are you just formulated differently? <laughs> I think, well, my dad definitely was not a natural salesman. And yeah, and he, he was good at it though, but he, you know, I think every day was probably a struggle and a pain and a hardship. Um, and my mom is, is much more outgoing and gregarious and loves to be around people. So I think for her it was easier, but it was just, it's just a hard way to make a living, you know? Yeah. Um, always having to go to people and ask for something. Well, that- like, I want people to have to come to me. I worked a sales job, and I think my background as a writer prepared me well because people are constantly rejecting you and telling you no. It didn't phase me in the least. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So at the very but end. it's a different kind of rejection. Like you know, in the writing world, like oh, I'm so used to getting emailed rejections or paper rejections, but you don't usually have to look at someone as they tell you no. Right. Well, yeah. Or, yeah, like I remember I, I also worked uh, in college. I was a telemarketer for the university. So uh, oh, wow. I went to the University of Colorado and I would call alumni and ask them for money um, oh. you know, for whatever, five bucks an hour or whatever. And I like it, it's, it's one thing to have people be rude and hang up in your face, which happened, you know, at least a, a few times every night. Uh, but it's another thing when yeah. you, you call somebody's house and that person has just died. <laughs> Oh wow! Because that yeah, you know, you're, you're calling somebody from like the class of nineteen like thirty four, and you know, <laughs> or or it could be more recent and and therefore more tragic. But that happened to me like on several occasions. Uh, wow! Yeah, and that that's no fun because you're calling to ask for money. No. You're calling to ask for money, and the person just died, and there's all this like sadness in the person's voice on the other end of the line, and oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So okay. So just because I I always tend to ask people on this program because I guess it fascinates me uh, where they think they get their writerly uh, genes from. Like, is it your dad? Since he's the more inward person, like, do you think he secretly has some sort of uh, literary? No. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Your mom. No. It's it's definitely my mom's family. Like she, um, most of the people in her family are were musicians. So like, um, like and what? actually like her two brothers and her sister, there were more than that, but a couple of her brothers and one of her sisters were on Sun Records, like in the sixties. Oh, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the Elvis Presley. Uh, yeah. And like Johnny label. Cash and where they all started out. Um, and they were on American Bandstand. They were like, they had this band that like, you know, just almost made it. They never, never made it, but it's, Still, occasionally we'll be watching some random movie, and my mom will be like, "Your uncle's wrote that song." Wait, um, so what's so the what's the band? Let's let's make them uh, famouser. Um, <laughs> so the band was called the Cliff Thomas Trio, and sometimes they actually recorded under Bobby and the Boys because my aunt's name was Bob Ran. It was basically like I guess whoever was singing it got to be their name, which just seems really random and <laughs> not like a good way to get your name out there. <laughs> Um, 
but yeah, they did that for a little while. And then my uncle got married and, you know, and went off and did, did the real life thing. Um, quit the band. Mm-hmm. So did you grow yeah, up, did so you grow up in like a musical household where like there was lots of singing and like people like playing banjos? Yeah. Or... <laughs> yeah. My brother was always in bands and he actually dropped out of oldness to like go on the road and tour with Charlie Mars. Um, and my little brother played like violin and the guitar and my sister's a songwriter in Nashville. Um, so yeah, everybody and lots of cousins and I, yeah, I am, like, I can sing a little bit, but I'm way too nervous to be able to, like, you know, get on stage. Like, occasionally they've had me sing back up at some family thing. But, yeah, we grew up around the piano, just, like, singing and belting it out and trying to be the loudest. As a kid, yeah, I was not shy. All right, so your mom could play the piano then? Yeah, my mom played the piano. She's not great, but she was in a band, um... Like in college too, and I think they were on like United Artists. It was like a big band, and she was the only girl. Um, and I'm sure they'd play like weddings and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah, a family full of hams. That sounds. I mean, that sounds great to me. Like my great grandfather, because uh, my family's from Louisiana, so I have some sort of like I guess Southern parallel. Though I never, I didn't grow up there, but. Uh, my great grandfather on my mother's side was a professional piano player, uh, because I, I don't like to say the word pianist. It's just a hard word for me. But yeah, <laughs> um, he played the piano and the violin. And uh, I look at the, um, you know, his descendants, all of my cousins, myself, my no one got it. Like no one's really music. really. Yeah, I mean, I guess like I kind of am the artistic one. Yeah, um, certainly in my family. And there are other artists on my mom's side among those cousins, but they're like really gifted visual artists. Uh, mm-hmm. And then but nobody can sing for shit and nobody nobody plays any instruments as far as I know, at least uh-huh. not proficiently. So somehow that genetic, yeah. that genetic mutation uh, to my everlasting bitterness did not make it through. <laughs> yeah, I feel like probably though. Like, I do feel like I have a good ear. I might not be able to play an instrument, but I feel like, you know, probably you did get some sense of musical ability because it's like the way you form words on a page and like, you know, it's just a good ear, which can't be taught. Well, this is the thing, too. I never had lessons. We never had a piano in my house. This is something I always uh, bitch about to my folks, but my parents didn't have a stereo in our house. Still don't. Really? They had no records. No. It was like uh, we were what? Am- it was like we were Amish. <laughs> my par- That's kind of crazy. Yeah, I know. And my parents, you know, they're of the baby boomer generation. They, you know, graduated college in the late sixties, early seventies, but you know, they were in the South during uh the sixties and missed it. They missed it culturally. Hmm. It was different down there. You know, like I think a lot of the centers of uh, you know, because you think of the 60s in college, you think of like campus protests and like, you know, bongo, yeah. you know, bongo drums and tear gas and stuff. And I don't think that was going on uh, in Baton Rouge, you know, or at least not in the circles my, yeah. my parents ran in. So I, I feel like they just never really connected. And what's weird is that I feel like I have um, more fluency and affection for the music of their time than they did or they do. <laughs> Yeah. My mom, yeah, she had thousands of records. And I mean, I guess just growing up, she, theirs was just a really musical family. But I know what you mean. Like, um, no, they weren't, they weren't very progressive back then. No. Um, 
Yeah, it was like when I did have a protest, it was to keep James Meredith out of Ole Miss. Um, is that is that the, yeah? That was, but, but that, yeah, I watched a documentary on that the other day. It was good. Well, you know, it's like that's the thing about it is that that's what was happening. There was the big civil rights shift, and I feel like um, the South. You know, the South just had a different experience of largely a different experience, I think, of that time than like Philadelphia, yeah. Philadelphia or Berkeley or whatever. So, um, for sure. So, okay. So, uh, it sounds like you had like a pretty cohesive family, though. Like your three siblings, Mississippi parents had steady jobs. Like, you know, it was a pretty like stable, happy upbringing. Yeah, it was. It was really great. Um, I mean, it was pretty ideal, really. My siblings and I are all real close. And we're still very close. Um, Wait, my sister and I travel together. Boys and girls. You had a you have a brother, a sister, and then who's the? Fourth? Yeah, I have I have two brothers and a sister. I'm the fourth. Okay. So yeah, you're the baby. Um, there's four of us all together. Um, no, I'm actually the second oldest. Oh, you are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. and, but close in age. Not lots of like brutal fighting or anything like that. Yeah, my mom had us all within six years, so we're we're pretty close in age. Um, I mean, I, I think I do remember as little kids, you know, we would torture a babysitter. Like a lot of our babysitters would leave crying and never <laughs> come back. Um, so we could be wild and, and kind of bad, but yeah, there, I mean, my younger brother, if, if there was somebody fighting, like he was always involved. So it was like, <laughs> there was one that kind of caused a few problems. But in general, like, yeah, it was, it was a really happy upbringing and a, a great childhood. Okay. So temperamentally, uh, among the four, like, wh- where do you fall on the spectrum? It sounds like your, your younger brother was the Hellraiser. Yeah, I think he was, um, there's always one. Right? I don't know if I, I don't, well, we were all kind of, kind of rebellious at one time or another because um, it, it was a strange situation where my parents were like really fundamentalist Catholic and, and very strict in certain ways but in other ways like they they were pretty permissive like I mean I remember my friend and I sneaking out at night and and we were just like trying to get caught so we could get in trouble and like we just could not get in trouble and we were just like this is, <laughs> this sucks like won't somebody ground me so it was it's really strange like in the catholic environment like you know there's things that are totally legit like you can go out drinking and partying right. and gamble a little but you know god forbid like you had sex or someone touched you like you know that, that's where the hammer would come down or something, but it was, yeah, it was kind of. <laughs> well, okay, so that's the thing. Trying. Like they, when they, when you say they were fundamentalist Catholic, it was like no sex uh, until you're married. Well, uh, it was like Catholicism is the one true religion. Like we were often told that this is the one true religion. Sort of nobody else's religion is valid. Kind of is what I mean by fundamentalist. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of I can relate to that. My family's uh, I was raised Catholic and. uh I think people who don't know the South or have like you know real context for it don't realize just how how uh, central to life and culture religion is down there. Like it's just different. Yeah, it's different. Like you know, like like if you live in the South and that's where you're raised, and especially generationally, like I think our parents' generation. I mean, that's just the, that was the water you swam in. That was normal, you know, and yeah, totally. that's, that's where everybody hung out on Sundays, and like it's just what you did and. I don't think that uh, in other parts of the country it's nearly that 
um, or, or it's not consistently that way in the way that it seems to be across yeah. the South, but I don't know. I have, uh, I have many well, uh, ventilated frustrations with, uh, that aspect of my upbringing that I've talked about on this show, but I mean, it, it are you pretty well adjusted? Yeah. Are, you, are you well adjusted about it? Did you rebel against that as a kid or are you, are you still Catholic? Um, I, I haven't been to church in a while. I, yeah, right now I definitely consider myself lapsed. Um, if I had to specify, it would be Christian, Catholic, lapsed with commas in between. But, but yeah, I, I went through, like, even as an undergrad in college, I would go to church every Sunday by myself. Um, and then when I got married and moved to Meridian in East Mississippi, my husband didn't want to go to church. And for some reason, I just, I just, I didn't want to go to church without him as a married woman. <laughs> it's something I had in my head. I think it was also like an excuse, like, oh, I don't have to church, you know, go to church anymore. Um, so I stopped probably around 23 or so. Well, it's just, and it becomes, and, it becomes force of habit. And I can say that like, if I go into a church, uh, especially if I'm in like some city and there's some beautiful old church and I go in. It could be any religion, but I do find there's you know, there's something beautiful about being inside of a church, and you know the Catholic experience. There's a cer- certain nostalgia that I have, and obviously like a certain feeling of, of connectivity with my uh, ancestors and with my parents, and you know that's uh, yeah. there's something that I connect to with it. But like at the level of dogma, um, and you know like at the level of this is the one true religion, I just it's a it's an eye roll for me. I can't. Uh, yeah. And and I just I, I wish that um, there was more like honest and open conversation about it. But I guess that when you pick a team like that, that's not what it's about. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not about it's not about constantly like trying to like poke the team and, and try to like unravel the ball of yarn or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. I still occasionally go with my parents, you know, maybe two or three times a year, but. I don't know. What do, I they, what do they have to say about your lapsedness? Like, are they, uh, well, essentially like all four of their children, um, are lapsed. So I think, <laughs> I think they just, I mean, my poor parents, um, we're all childless and in our thirties and only one of us is married. Is that, that's um, you? I'm divorced. divorced. No, I'm divorced. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're basically just, this still intact nuclear family. Um, Wait, none and, and of us have... isn't, isn't divorce for, uh, forbidden by the Catholic Church too, or no? Yeah, well, I think in order for me to remarry, if I wanted to remarry in the Catholic Church, I would need to get my first um, marriage annulled, is, oh. is the way I understand it, but I'm not positive. And so how long were you married? I was married for a little over seven years. So I was just thinking about it this morning that I've been I've been divorced now for as long as I was married. Well, you got, this is like the seventh year. But you got married young, right? Like that's a. Uh, I got a, married really young, like at twenty two. Ugh, that's what. Yeah, that's the that's the South too, though, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. It was it was way too young. I think I just like I'd had no sort of life experiences. I'd never. You know, I'd never really had a job. I had a BA in psychology. And then it's like, all right, kid, you're on your own. You know, go out there and knock them dead. And it's like, maybe I'll just get married. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I was just, I was just, yeah, life, I was just totally ill prepared for it. So wait, where did you go to college? Did you already say this? 
I went to college at Mississippi State University in Starkville. Okay, so Starkville. Um, yeah, I talked yeah. to I talked to a guy uh, on this program. A guy. I talked to an author, and I'm going to blank on who it was that teaches in Starkville. But I have I have had a conversation um, direct from Starkville. And I, and I, uh, God, I'm, now, see, my memory is so bad, but I do remember also that like um, he was in like a, a closed little like phone booth. I'm going to feel like an asshole. Oh, really? I feel like an asshole for not remembering. But anyway, he had closed himself off for quietness, you know, to have some solitude, but then didn't realize that it locked when you close the door. And so after, <laughs> after we hung up, he emailed me like the next day and was like, after we hung up, I found that I was locked in this like, you know, this like tiny cell for like two hours. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Brad Watson. No. Nah. Nah, 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 nah. I'll have to think. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll correct the record when I post your episode, but. Um, okay. So you went to Starksville. You got a psychology degree. Oh, yes, yeah, Starksville. Starksville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starksville psycho- yeah. psychology yeah. degree. Uh, yeah. A sensitive. Were you writing poetry? No. No. Oh wait, wait. Yes, I was occasionally, okay. but it was like you know the darkest hour of your life, like the worst poetry ever, and then you'd make <laughs> your friends listen to it. Yeah. Okay. It, I was a little bit, but it was really bad. And um, did you, I mean, what were you like in college? Did you go crazy? Because like there's the, you know, and also there's the, we didn't really get to it, but like, you know, the Catholic schoolgirl um, uh, stereotype, like because you have mm-hmm. this like fundamentalist uh, Catholic um, parental situation and you had gone through, you know, Catholic school, which is, uh, you know, confining, like, did you have like any kind of like rebellion against that? Were you particularly wild, like either in high school, once you became an adolescent or once you got to college and were out of the, the, uh, the home? I guess I was, I was a little wild in college. Um, but not probably not more than any other, you know, typical college student. I, um, my mother, Insisted that I join a sorority though because she knew I wouldn't make friends otherwise. Because <laughs> I'd probably just end up sitting in my dorm room. Um, so I joined a sorority and I was what a part of that for what, like. What were you? I was a, a Kappa Delta. Okay. A KD. Um, and I dropped out, but it like after maybe two years, two and a half years, my it's best okay. friend and it's I dropped okay. out at the same time. It's okay if you were in a sorority. I feel like that because I. Yeah. <laughs> I was in a fraternity for a month, and then the fraternity got kicked, or for a semester, and then the fraternity got kicked off campus. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, for bad behavior. But I, you know, uh, I didn't know. I was new to college. I didn't know anybody, and I didn't know how. Yeah. To all I wanted to do is like go to parties, and you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And I met all of my uh, close friends in college through that, or most of them anyway. So. Um, yeah. But I feel like as an author, it, it's a, it's like part of uh, your bona. F- uh, bona fides or bona fides to say that like you weren't in like i didn't do that you know what i'm saying it makes it sort of like hurts, yeah it hurts my street cred to admit that <laughs> yeah it does a little bit like yeah all of my friends had gone to Ole Miss or you know the university of mississippi and um all my siblings and my parents got degrees there and it was just kind of where you went after you finished at my high school and i was just like I- i'm not gonna do that i feel like I wouldn't be able to, I don't know. I was just tired of, of being in that environment. And so Mississippi state was, you know, exactly. it at least offered some semblance of like, you don't have to be the person you've always been. Right. Right. Well, no, I, I almost went, uh, I had a, my name on the door at Indiana university and I, I went to high school in Indiana and I made mm-hmm. like a, a last minute decision to go to Colorado 
for precisely. Yeah. For, I think I just like it got to be close to the actual summer uh, after I'd graduated and it started to dawn on me that I was just going to do like high school part two. And I was like, I can't do it. I got to get it. Yeah. Out. You know? Yeah. So okay. you don't regret it for a minute, huh? Oh no. But you know, it's a bit, it's yeah. a life, it's a life changing thing. You know, like I went all the way across the country. I met people yeah. from, and you know, I think, I feel like Colorado is a school that got more out of state students. It just, you know, it just totally, mm-hmm. totally changed the course of my life. And I hope, hopefully for the better. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it does, it doesn't sound like for you that you, I mean, did you ever have, um, you know, going through, I guess the marriage, the early marriage, and then, uh, the subsequent divorce, like that was a difficult time, but college, like nothing, uh, too crazy happened. You just went through, got your degree, then immediately got hitched. Pretty much. Um, yeah, I. What do you I do? Mean, what are your college... demons? What are your demons, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> um, like now or <laughs> lifelong. I have I have I have a lot of trouble with anxiety issues. You're like the um, third or four. I think you're the th- like third person in a row that I've spoken with. Third or maybe three out of four that is, that has had uh, really. Like, are we talking clinical anxiety and panic attacks and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I've been I. I thought a lot about it and just um, how it affected me really since I was a young kid. Um, yeah, and just sort of tracking the progression of it. I feel like it's it's more manageable now than it probably was at, at other points. But so yeah, did, if I did, had to have, how did it manifest when you were a little kid? Like, and do you, can you trace like it's a it's a source or it's you know what I'm saying? Was there something externally that freaked you out, or is this all just a uh genetics yeah no I, I really like i can't pinpoint anything that ever happened or that went wrong and i was the only one in my family really that was like that just like extremely neurotic i would um as a young kid just sit at the kitchen table and write my name over and over when i was just learning to write my name and if it didn't look exactly like i wanted it to look i would i would throw a huge tantrum and throw my pencil um, all four of us had like our own rooms as kids. And if anybody had been in my room, like if they had even breathed the air in my room, I would have known it. And I would like cry. And <laughs> like, so my brothers would come in my room and just sit on my bed, like, just like, just messing up the pillow a little bit. And that would send me into just just terrific hysterics. Why? Just because um, you wanted everything neat, or because you, was it germs? Yeah, I was. I was. I was a little neat freak. Like whenever I had something nice, I would put it on a shelf and never use it, and things had to be lined up perfectly. I had this um, one chair in my room. It was like hung from the ceiling. It was like this wicker half bird cage thing. Okay. And and the cushion was this really like lovely cushion, but it was like white and. And I had pink flowers, but I knew that if I sat on it too much, like the white <laughs> would turn dirty looking. So I would never even sit in this chair. Um, just like little, like super neurotic things that I don't know where they came from. Or I mean, I guess if I had to describe them, it'd be like perfectionistic. Or you know, like profession, yeah, it almost sounds, it, it, like it almost sounds like OCD. In addition, like no. yeah, yeah, okay. So and then yeah, like panic attack stuff. Like, can you? Were there episodes that were uh, particularly um, 
memorable? Like, you know, did you have like some big, huge panic attack in church or something like staring up at Jesus or? No, it's mostly been, I think the, the anxiety really started probably around the time I got married or shortly thereafter. Um, just, just more of like a generalized anxiety disorder. I mean, usually there's not, I don't have panic attacks that are so severe that, you know, I'm totally freaking out or anything. By the way, by the way, I I think I was projecting my own panic about Jesus on there. (laughs) I'm really sorry about that. (laughs) I do, I do remember that as a child, like looking up at the stations of the cross or like the crucifix, like it's always seemed like a particularly heavy uh, bit of iconography for like a kid to have to ingest, you know, this man like nailed to a, yeah, it's intense. So, um, but so you get married and then like the, the anxiety starts to become more prominent. Like was, I guess it was like an outgrowth of like, holy shit, I'm, I'm only 23. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah, and then I was I was working um, as a claims representative at the Social Security Administration. So I worked like in a in a little cubicle in an office with a bunch of people who was like it was mostly like elderly ladies and then men who were preachers on the weekends. Oh my god! Um, so it's just in this life of you know, like yeah. how, how did I find myself in this life? And you're looking at these older ladies thinking like, this is going to be me. Like, is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you know, it's a federal government job, so it paid pretty well. And, and the area is very impoverished. So it's like nobody who got one of those jobs would ever retire. And I'm the only one that probably ever quit. Um, but yeah, so they just knew they were there for the rest of their lives and they were very bitter about it. And yeah, my best friend was this like 300 pound preacher named Jimmy. Jimmy? We'd go to the subway. Jimmy, yeah. And we'd go to the subway for lunch every day. Whoa. Um, yeah. So how did you get out of it? Like, so when did it, when did like push finally come to shove? I was there for probably like three or three and a half years. And then, um, (laughs) I was so miserable that I started having these psychosomatic problems. Like I was convinced I had multiple sclerosis. I started getting like numb spots on my feet and um, my balance was off. And like, I literally made myself like totally physically ill and I had to go like have all these tests done. I had a brain MRI. Um, And after like days of testing, I went to see the neurologist and he was just like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, <laughs> would you like some Lexapro <laughs> or whatever? And yeah. And so what happened? And then I just, I quit. Um, yeah, I just, I just quit. I mean, really the government, like, well, when I was there, the office, like say when I was hired, they hired two other people and one of them was unable to do the job. And that's kind of how it always goes. So, like, the person who's unable to really do their job because they're just not confident enough or whatever, they sit in the break room, like, playing checkers, and the other people are just, like, enormously overworked. So my workload was crazy, and I couldn't keep up with it. And and finally, I just told my boss, um, yeah, because they, they wouldn't help me. So I was just like, I'm going to die here. I have to leave. And I quit. Um yeah. That's a good, but it's a good feeling. I mean, you must have walked out that door on that last day feeling good, right? Yeah. I mean, I did. I did. And um, my husband didn't care if I worked or not, but 
of course, then I'm sitting at home in a little house in Meridian, Mississippi, where I have no friends um, and no job. So, I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't ideal. Yeah, what, what's Meridian? Yeah. What's Meridian, Mississippi, like? I don't think I've been. Listening. It's it's on I-20. It's um it's in East Mississippi, like a few miles from the Alabama border. Um, so it's there's really nothing over there but like paper mills and beer and poor people and um yeah. Not a whole lot going on. There's, there was a mall in my town. There are a lot of buffets where people ate at. Um, I'm not. Yeah. A fa- I'm not a fan of buffets. I got to be honest. No, I mean it's disgusting. No. I just <laughs> the sneeze guard and the whole. I can't deal. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just perfectly disgusting. Yeah, we would we would like be sitting at Barnhill's buffet on a Monday. Ugh. It's just so gross. Isn't it? <laughs> And then you couple that with like the the heat and the humidity and the buffet. I just can't. I can't go. There. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, are you when? What, like, how does writing factor into all this? Like, when did you start to think that you were going to be uh, writing fiction? Yeah. No. That's um. So that is the good thing. After after I quit the social security office, um, I had another job here or there, but I gradually like. I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I'd never really written. And while I wasn't working, I started writing. So my husband would go off to work, and um, and I'd spend, you know, most of the day, like, typing up stories and stuff. Um, so I guess I was around maybe 26 or 27 when I started started working. And what about your, um, what about your reading? What about your – you must have been reading in tandem or – yeah, I mean, I was always I was always a big reader, but at the same time, like, you know, there like in Meridian, for example, there was obviously no like cool indie bookstore where you could walk in and like somebody who actually reads would be like, here, read this book, it's great. So I mean, you know, mostly I'd wander into Books a Million. We did have a Books a Million, and um, you know, people don't read. That's terrible to say. I probably shouldn't say that, but I mean, for the most part. You know, you just find what you could find on the shelf, and it was classics and the bigger bestsellers. And um, but yeah, I was definitely reading. I'd read a lot of magazines, and I would read a lot of Stephen King. And you know, I don't know when I first found like Mary Gateskill or Carver or you know some of the writers that it's like, oh, this is pretty damn cool. But that, th- those were those were two that were big for you. Yeah, and like Dennis Johnson, Jesus's son. Um, yeah, there were a few early on, but I was just, you know, even like starting to reread the short stories of Hemingway, which maybe I'd read a few, you know, in high school. Um, yeah. Okay, so I don't really. So you're in mm-hmm. this. You're in this period post social, <laughs> social security cubicle. Uh, it's a period of intense writing and reading. Are the stories that you were writing during this period of time any good, or was this kind of like apprenticeship and you were working out how to do it? Yeah, there was definitely some of that working out how to do it, but but like um, actually, like the first stories I wrote are in big world. Like I was also writing flash fiction, so you know those aren't. But the first short stories I wrote, they're pretty much all in Big World. So that was, I mean, that was early stuff. Um, Big World actually came out like in 
probably in late fall of 2008. And yeah, those were some of my very first stories. So they just, and, like, they just some... came right out of you. I mean, like you didn't have, cause usually I, you know, with writers, it's like, Oh God, those first stories I tried to write were, uh, you know, a complete mess, but it sounds like you had, you had things, you know, kind of cooking. And then when you finally got the time to sit down and do it, they came out, they came out good. Well, I think there's there is like one ask or one level of just like you know I didn't know what I was doing at all. I mean, I was like buying. I started to buy craft books and read craft books because I'd never have a, had a workshop or anything. Um, so I was like reading up on kind of what not to do. But for the most part, when I started writing, like I just gave myself total freedom. You know, I didn't know what not to do or what to do or. Um, I knew I was a horrible poet, and I started out initially, like, thinking I was going to write poetry, and then the poetry grew, grew into, like, flash fiction, and then the flash fiction grew into short stories, but, yeah, I mean, I think, I think right away, I just, I was having so much fun with it, and thinking, um, you know, I can do anything I want here. Were you doing, were you thinking publication? Like, did you, were you nursing ambitions? Uh, or was it just like, I need to do this for reasons I don't quite understand. And because I like it, that's why I'm doing it. No. Yeah. Immediately. I was just like crazy ambitious. <laughs> like my husband would come home from work, ex-husband, and I would be like, I'm going to be famous. Do you know how good I am? And of course, like he isn't a mechanical engineer and would never read outside of like the office and so he would never read anything of mine so he's like oh yeah yeah you're great you know you never wear the words but he would sit and tell me like yeah you're gonna definitely be famous um but so I you, think you would actually like, say that you would actually say i'm gonna be famous you <laughs> yeah i mean i was like completely delusional but i think it was just like i'd never really been good at anything or had enjoyed anything as much and so I just was like, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to be good at it. Um, and because, it, yeah, it was finally like something that I could do. Okay, okay. So like the actual act of writing fiction for you is not a struggle or – I mean, not that it's not difficult work, but it, it's not painful for you. It's, it's, it's joy. Um, I think I think – in the beginning, for sure, it was much more joyful. Right. <laughs> um, now, yeah, I mean, especially working on really longer things. But I think when, when something is really good or when it's good, it is so much easier and it is pretty joyful. Um, for me, it's more like when I'm trying to work on the story, a story that really doesn't want to be written and I'm trying to force it into this form um, that's when it sucks. And when it's also just like, you know, give it up and work on something else. And sometimes I forget that. And I just like keep plugging away at something that will never work. Yeah. Well, I, I can relate. And I mean, what about, uh, you know, your actual like day-to-day -day process of writing, like, you know, the schedule that you were keeping, like, were you pretty disciplined in addition to being ambitious? Uh, like, were you getting up early and setting yourself like a work schedule or was it just kind of uh, like a leisurely? Whatever? Well, yeah, I mean, I had absolutely nothing to do except like occasionally go to the grocery store and I was, I was a terrible like wife. I mean, I didn't cook. I didn't really clean. <laughs> I mean, maybe I did laundry, but, but yeah, I mean, I wasn't, um, wifely in any way. So I had plenty of time and, um, 
I remember one of the first stories I wrote, um, leak, and it was it was really long for me. It's like over seven thousand words, and I worked on that one for months. Um, and that was one of the harder ones, just because it was sort of long and plotless. But but yeah, it's just like teaching myself and and. But you need those years. You, you have to have that time. I mean, I, I guess people do it all different sorts of ways, but it seems like a common denominator. Like writers, however they happen to be living in terms of living standard, um, you know, most of them seem to find some way in their earlier years to have nothing to do except read and write or largely nothing to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably... I would not be a writer right now, I'm sure, if I hadn't had that time. Well, and, um, and you didn't have children, you know, in your 20s during that. Yeah. So that would have yeah. uh, that would have definitely, I think that would have altered your schedule at the very least. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I probably would have ever started unless I just had so much time on my hands. But that's see, but that seems like counterintuitive too, especially in the context of like uh, southern tendencies. Like you get married at 22 and then have no children. Um, I guess maybe generationally it might be different, but at least in my parents' day, like you got married, then I want to say my mom had my sister when she was 22. You know, it was just different times. Yeah. So, uh, what about getting yeah. to Texas? Uh, how did you get to Austin? The was that after, like post marriage, you moved to Austin? Yeah. So I um, I was divorced in like 2007, and then I moved to Nashville for a year. Mostly just because my sister was there and I wanted a change of scenery. And while I was in Nashville, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and get an MFA. Um, so I started applying. And I don't know if I applied to maybe five or six schools. And I got in, I think UNLV was the only one I got into um, until the last minute when um, I called up the University of Southern Mississippi. And I was just, I was just scared to go like so far away. Um, so I ended up going to Southern Mississippi, basically begged them to let me in. And I don't know, my application would have gotten something had gotten lost or something. But I really like, um, <laughs> I really like Frederick Bartholomew a lot. Um, and both he and his brother, Stephen, um, teach in the writing program there. Actually, Frederick's gone now, but they were there when I was there. And so I got an, an MA. Um, and then I did like a year's worth of PhD coursework, which was, it was hell. I just, I was a terrible PhD student. Um, what you were, you were thinking so, you were going to go the academic route and teach and do all that. You know, I think just, I think just, I thought I didn't know what else to do. And it was like, um, like our thesis and dissertation could be in create or in creative writing. So it was, you know, it was, um, it wasn't wholly academic, but yeah, it was very, I remember like my first class or something, reading my peers, like literary criticism papers or whatever, and just thinking, this is an, a language that I do not understand. I don't understand why, why you have to write like in such a convoluted manner. Um, what are all these semicolons doing? Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't even my brain did not process it, well, you know, <laughs> and I, I never got any better. Academic writing, I mean, I guess it might be a little bit better in um, you know, the, the literary realm, but academic writing in general just seems like it's usually dry and unreadable, you know? It's so, yeah, it's so bad. Um, so it's kind of miserable there as a PhD student, and then also I'm in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is not a booming town. <laughs> um, 
so um, I really wanted to go to the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas. And since, yeah, so my teachers there, my professors there helped me. They wrote me rec letters and stuff. I think they were just like, yeah, you, you don't belong here. So I came, I, the Michener Center is a three-year program, so and wait, I've been here. You got your MFA, and then you went and got, or you got your MA, and then you're like, I'm going to go get my MFA, too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't want to get the PhD, and then also, I I always wanted to go to the Michener Center, and I'd been turned down, like, the first time I applied, and so I just thought, well, I'm going to try one more time, and if I get in, I'll go, and it's just, it's such an amazing program, and it's three years, and there's, you don't have to work, and they give you, like, a really nice living wage. Um, that sounds heavenly. And you, get yeah. to, and you get to live in Austin, which has uh, some buffets, but like a high, like a lower per capita buffet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can actually like be a vegetarian here, whereas in Mississippi, that was really not an option for are you, me. Are you a vegetarian? Um, I'm not, I'm not super strict anymore. Like I'll eat seafood and fish. Um, but yeah, but, but yeah, in Mississippi, it's. It's deer sausage and bacon and everything. Right. You, don't, and, you don't have to tell me. I'm a vegetarian, and like I, yeah. go, I go down to the south, and then uh, I, you know I am looked at it's askance. Tough. It's hard. <laughs> I pulled it off on my last yeah. trip. Um, I went to a wedding, and I, I somehow managed, like over the course of a long weekend, including a trip to the French Quarter, I managed to not eat any. Wow. Yeah, but it's not easy. You don't eat. You don't eat fish or seafood either. Uh-uh. Yeah. Mm-mm. How I mean, long have you been a vegetarian? Uh, since I was 21 with like some, la- like, oh, you know, wow. some, some lapses, but almost 20 years, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so it sounds good though. You live in Austin, you're in the mission, you're still in the Missioner center or are you out? No, I, um, I finished in May. So oh, I'm now I'm just, I'm so sorry. I know. <laughs> I know. It's really, so it's what, really sad. Where are you going to get your next, uh, master's degree? Like, we're just gonna... <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely done with school. That's, I'm like, so old um and i have two master's degrees um yeah i'm definitely done with school but it was it was a really really nice um and you finished your, i hate to work you finished your novel you know? while you were there i did yeah i started the novel between my first and second years and i wrote a draft pretty quickly and then the rest of the time i was there i pretty much spent like revising it and yeah, and, then and how, I sold it. Okay, so how did that go? You got an agent and it sold, or what happened? Yeah, I, I've had an agent maybe for like four years, and um, she read Big World and liked it and contacted me, and and I was like, sure, you can represent me. I mean, you're never going to make a penny off me, but whatever, if you want to. What happened to all your ambition? You should have been like, you're going to get so rich. <laughs> Well, at the time, this I, I you know worked on a few novels and they were terrible and I hadn't finished them and um, so I just I had no really intention of writing a novel and you know short story writers it's not as bad as being a poet but nearly so um, as far as just money sure. um, and making a living so yeah so I, I got an agent um, like my first year at the Fisher Center maybe and then. Um, she tried to sell my second short story collection and nobody, nobody, nobody bought it. Um, and then she tried to sell the novel and that went a lot better. 
So I think I think maybe in two or three weeks, um, Katie Adams at Liveright Norton, she bought it, and yeah, it was it was really it seems really easy when I look back at it. I mean, I know it wasn't, but you know. Well, that sounds like a, a dream come true. What was like? What was the actual experience like? You get a phone call and. Yeah, it was like last Christmas and I was in the airport about to, about to fly back to Mississippi for the holidays and my agent calls and she's like, we just got an offer and we discussed the offer and there was like a little back and forth. And then before I got on the plane, like uh, my agent was like, all right, well, we're not going to take any other offers. Um, we're done. So, you know, I mean, we decided that together, obviously, but yeah, so by the time I got on the plane, I sold my book, and I got to come home for Christmas and be like, Triumphant you know. return. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's what two master's degrees will get you, mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, my parents are, are really excited, and I do feel like, um, you know, I hate to say that I disappointed them for so long, but, you know, a divorced daughter in her 30s who's on her second master's degree, it's not not really what you'd want to be bragging to your friends about. <laughs> but so now they <laughs> I can only imagine so I can only something. imagine what my parents must have to say at cocktail parties, you know. It's <laughs> we don't leave them an easy like like it's just not an easy like uh, elevator pitch. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I no. guess it would be easier if like I had written some movie that had been in the theaters, but even with books, I mean unless the book is like Gone Girl or do you know yeah. what, you know like people just don't give a shit or most people don't. No, they totally don't give a shit. I think, um, but there are like a few things, like there was a write-up for my book in Elle magazine in January's issue, right. and um, so my mom got to like actually, you know, be like, here is something that you can look at, <laughs> something that you've heard of, you know, it was like finally like she had in her hand some sort of documentation that I wasn't a loser. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, my book, uh, my yeah. book got reviewed in People magazine. <laughs> it was like a, it was like a. a oh. That's amazing. Yeah, it was like a 40-word review that was like very <laughs> like just completely opaque and like you couldn't tell if they liked it or hated it, but it was like in People magazine. Uh it was the issue with I remember Christopher Reeve was on the cover uh with his wife. Oh uh, wow. Rest in peace, but yeah, I mean I, I I do remember that and uh that was a big deal in my household. Yeah. And in much the same way that it was a big deal when uh for my grandmother in Louisiana when my friends and I uh when I was in college got wasted and uh tried to get on the prices right. That was like the biggest, uh, my grandmother, you would have thought I would have gone to like, uh, you know, the Vatican for like an audience with the Pope because she was so in love with Bob Barker. But, uh, if only she had known just how intoxicated we were. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean trying to get on the prices right? Like y'all went, we went, uh, yeah, this was like at the height of my, uh, like neo hippie idiocy. And we went to, uh, uh the Price is Right during our spring break. We were on a big road trip, and we're just trying to be Hunter Thompson. And uh, we all showed up at, <laughs> at CBS Television City at sunrise, and it was like us and like a bevy of senior citizens, and you know a few other like tour groups and like matching T-shirts. And what was so funny about it is that we were completely um, deranged, you know, when we showed up and all, <laughs> all throughout the day. But then we were like deeply offended that they didn't pick us. <laughs> Like, That's so funny. Yeah. So they do like a pre-screening process for possible contestants. <laughs> and when they talk to us, they must have just been like crossing our names off you know, like, immediately. Oh, God. We found it deeply offensive. And uh, I continue to be offended. So 
live at your grandmother, could she actually like see you in the audience or yes. just knowing that you no, were in the yeah. There is like, and I mean, like, I want to say I was wearing like a tie dyed shirt and like flannel pants. I mean, it was awful. And I had long hair and. There's like like a couple of times when they pan to the audience and like my <laughs> friends and I are like you know completely uh, in our ecstasy. So uh, anyhow, where, how did we get on that topic? I forgot how. Where we, I know. Where we... uh, we're talking about how our families think we're losers, and then what they could show <laughs> other people, which is like uh, your yes. Paul Parker clip. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, but it is funny because I feel like. Um, you know, as a people need those cultural t- touchstones in order for it to make sense. I guess since you're published yeah. by a, like a, you're published by a publisher that pe- like a lot of people know, um, that might help. Like people say that, and then suddenly you're like co-branded with like, you know, it's just it's very difficult to make it make sense until it's like on the bestseller list or you're you're somehow a quote, yeah. a quote unquote famous author. But that seems to be going the way of the dinosaur. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, did, like, so where where are you now? Like, you got this book coming out. Uh, congratulations, because you know, thank you. All of that, all the stuff we just discussed aside, it's a great achievement. And you know, for those of us who do care about it, uh, we know how difficult it is to get there. So you must feel good about it. Yeah, I do. Um, it's been really exciting. Um, it's been, you know, nerve wracking and exciting and. There's way too much time spent Googling myself and mostly coming up with, like, other people named Mary Miller. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is it is an exciting time, and the book's actually out the 20th, so it's getting closer and closer. Um, and it'll be nice to, like, yeah, go to the bookstore and see it on the shelves. And my local, like, indie bookstore here has been really supportive, and a lot of just the people who work there have read it and... They've been really nice to me. So you're going to go on tour. I am. Yeah, it won't be much of a tour. Like I'm, I'm doing readings here in Texas and then in Mississippi, and that's that's really about it for the next like month or two. And then I'll probably go to Atlanta sometime, like in April. And Elizabeth Allen and I are talking about possibly doing some readings like late spring or this summer, which. I don't know. We somehow do like every year, mostly as an excuse just to go somewhere. Are you part of that gang? Um, I want to say I've been seeing this on my social media feed. Like there was some sort of Southern tour. I always feel like there's just like photos going around. Yeah, Yeah, I did. I did that Southern tour, which was, I don't know. That wasn't this past summer, but the summer before last, I think. Okay. Um, But yeah. And, and then a bunch of them went to like Jamaica yeah. Um, a few months ago, but I couldn't, I couldn't make that trip. But yeah, Elizabeth and I are, are good friends and we see a lot of each other, even though she lives far away. Oh. Um, so what yeah. are you, what are you doing now? You're in Austin, your post, uh, post-grad book coming out floating. Like, yeah, that's what you're doing. I'm doing a lot of nothing. Like right now I'm doing interviews and stuff for the book and then I'll go on like a little mini book tour. And then, um, in the fall I have a job teaching at Ulna, so I'm going to go back to Mississippi. Um, How'd you get so that? I got like a, I got like a one-year appointment. It's called the John Grisham Writer-in-Residence, and I think it's just, I, um, I have some friends there. It's kind of an internal nomination process, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be really great, because I'll get to teach fiction workshop, just like one workshop each semester, and to live and kind of be a part of their their community you're gonna live at home and they've got a 
no, no, no. I'll, I'll live in Oxford. They like oh, that's Oxford, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was so going to say, John, John Grisham better be putting you up. He can't just give you a job. He's, yeah. <laughs> I want to be in the John Grisham, like, uh, what does he have? Is it the penthouse or something on Oxford's campus? I, I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever even meet him while I'm there. I don't think there'll be, like, a dinner with John Grisham night <laughs> or anything. Um, but I, he's he's extremely generous to the school. Yeah. No, I've, actually, I've heard good things. I, I don't I don't, I don't want to imply that I'm knocking John Grisham because I have I have a buddy – who knows him and says he's a very nice guy, but uh, you know, who knows? Maybe, yeah. I'll, maybe I'll have him on the show. John, if you're listening, let's talk sometime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. Uh, he actually, uh, I, I have to say that we, I actually did meet him once. I was on like a little mini book tour. I don't know. It was randomly like me and Kevin Sampsel and some other people. And we went to read in Oxford and John Grisham was in the bookstore at square books, just signing his stock. And the owner was like, hey, do you want to read with these indie lit kids? And he actually read with us. Um, so he, like, read right after me, like, a portion of whatever novel he had out at, at the time. Wow. And was just extremely gracious. And Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. this is the thing. I want to have a writer like that. I feel like those kinds of writers, they actually get asked to be interviewed a ton. And so I think they, you know, they get tired of it or they're just... Maybe this is yeah. all in my, maybe this is all in my imagination. Maybe he'd be totally game to talk, but I do want to talk to a writer or writers on this show who have sold like a shit ton of books because yeah. I want to hear about that experience. Like what must it be like to publish knowing that like, you know, like your basement is like 1.5 million people are going to read my book. Like, so and, insane. And, you know, it just seems like a very rare, I mean, it is a very rare experience. I, I, I feel like, um, I don't know, one in a million, I guess, but I'd love to hear what, like, yeah. what, what his, like, what his thoughts are. Like, what is his, I guess it's the same. Totally. You show up to work in the morning, you send it out there and then you don't think about it too much, but you would have to, it would have to change. I think it would have to change how you write or, or how, at least how you feel about yourself when you, when you kind of know you have this huge audience. Yeah. No. Yes. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine well, what. Mary, what you're, it's like. you're on your way. This is just the first step. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to call up my ex-husband and be like, guess what? I'm a genius. I'm brilliant. Just, yeah, don't call um, him up. Don't call him up. Just send him a copy of the book and just write that in the inscription. Yeah. You know, autograph it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Well, it's been fun talking with you. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, congratulations. Good luck on the mini tour. Good luck uh, during your uh, residency as a uh, John Grisham scholar. And uh, <laughs> thank and, you. And, and best of luck on uh, whatever uh, you know, whatever book comes next. Thanks so much, Brad. Okay, everybody, there you go. That's Mary Miller. Go get her novel, The Last Days of California, available from Live Right. You can find Mary online at Twitter, where her handle is at Mary U as in the letter U, at Mary U. Miller. She might be on Facebook, too. You can go check that out. I have no idea. Uh, I have failed you in that capacity. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to rate and review this program over at iTunes. That really does help. Pretty please do that. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this podcast. It's the best and easiest way to keep up with the program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. You can also download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all, you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. 
which means you can subscribe to premium from right there inside of the app. Uh, it's only two bucks a month. And then you have access to everything. Every interview I've ever done, conversations with authors like Jerry Stoll, Ben Marcus, Heidi Julevitz, Edgar Oliver. Uh, have you guys heard the Edgar Oliver interview? It's really deeply unusual. So uh, please go get the app and then sign up for premium. It's a good thing to do. It helps me keep the show going. And what once again, the app itself is free. Okay, so uh, my note card situation, I'm hoping it works out. I'm hoping that I'm on the right track and that my, uh, my instincts are good. I want my instincts to be good. And uh, what I want to do is I want to write a book about my life. That's what I think I want to do. <laughs> or about my, my mental life and uh, my various struggles, how I feel about uh, the big things. Death, God, or uh, the lack thereof, confusion. I want to illuminate my confusion. And I want to include uh, literary and artistic biography, parallel stories from history that somehow help to underscore what it is that I'm trying to say. I want to write the book that I want to read. And the book that I want to read uh, might very well be strange. So please wish me luck. Light a candle for me and uh, my note cards. Please remember that Bertolt Brecht died of a stroke and that Vincent Van Gogh once wrote in a letter, quote, This morning I walked to the place where the street cleaners dump the rubbish. My God, it was beautiful. End quote. That's it for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Mary Miller. Go get her novel. Help launch her. Support the arts. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode to uh, help you get over the hump. But of course, uh, we know that in life, in the existential sense at least, all summits are false summits. And that the climb never really ends. Uh, until, of course, it does with shocking finality. 